Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Today we're going to escape from lockdown three and endless vaccine and mutant talk and head to Japan, which is the subject of a new book by Christopher Harding, a lecturer at Edinburgh University. The Japanese, A History in Twenty Lives is a companion volume, I really like that phrase, to Japan's story, his take on the country's history since 1850. The closest I've got to Japan recently was a cherry blossom and almond roll on Junior Bake Off, which most of the contestants managed to massacre, so I'm definitely up for some escapism at this point. And it's nearly cherry blossom season in Japan. The first blooms will appear in mid-March, earlier than usual. Admiring the flowers is so important in Japan that a whole ritual is devoted to it, the Hanami Festival, when people have picnics underneath cherry trees. And Chris, hello, welcome to the bunker. Hello, thank you for having me. You moved to Japan in 2004, didn't you? Did you get the chance to take place, uh, take part in Hanami? I did. It's one of those parts of Japanese culture, I think, when you make a few Japanese friends, it's something they're very proud of and they want to show you. So I was taken out to, I think it was Ueno Park in Tokyo, which is wonderful for this kind of thing. And you take along your little mat and some beer and some snacks from the local convenience store. And yeah, you sit down and you chat. I suppose you do, of course, you see them. Hanami means looking at the flowers. You do look at them and, and some people are with this lovely expensive photography equipment taking their photos but it's also just kind of being amongst them being amongst the blossoms and with friends and chatting it's just such a a a calm wonderful optimistic atmosphere it's a it's a really fond memory one of my earliest of uh, of being in japan and i didn't happen last year did it because people were urged not to gather in this way because of covid is it going to happen this year I think it is. Yes, I think there are kind of ad hoc restrictions in place for some parts of Japan where the local authorities are a little bit worried um, about the spread of COVID. But I mean, Japan hasn't been hit as badly, anything like as badly, actually, by COVID as, as we have. Plus, it's outside. Plus, in Japan, there's quite a strong culture of mask wearing anyway, uh, partly because of um what they call kofunsha or hay fever, actually. So for all sorts of reasons, it's probably going to be doable. And it's something that would be, I think, incredibly depressing in Japan if you took that away from people. So I think it'll happen, but just with the uh, that ubiquitous expression, social distancing going on. What approach has Japan taken to COVID? Because I think I'm right in saying it has a state of emergency, but no lockdown. How has that worked? That's right. Um, I think some foreign observers thought early on that this must be a constitutional problem, that the, the government in Japan don't have the power to compel people in the way that we've been compelled here under our lockdown. Um, I don't think it's that. The government could do that if they had a vote of their parliament, the Japanese diet. I think there's a there's been a certain amount of cultural resistance to it. It's only a few decades ago, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, that Japan was living under a very repressive militaristic regime. So when you try to get the population to do things now, it's much more the language of please and gentle moral pressure rather than compulsion. You know, so we've seen big political figures encouraging people uh, to stay away, encouraging people to to behave in a certain way, but without having that um, element of compulsion and criminalization, which we've got here. So a history in 20 lives tells the story of 20 Japanese people, 
starting mm. with Himiko, who was born in the year 170, to Awada Masako, who is now the Empress of Japan and fairly well known in Britain because she studied at Oxford. You explain in the book that to an extent, the Japanese shun talk of ideals and instead prize what you call exemplary lives, people who epitomise a life lived well. Tell us why Himiko is the first person you chose. Well, she's the first um, known and named person in Japanese history. So she's a natural place to start. And although we don't know a, a terribly large amount um, about her, it's also a bit about what she represents, because she is a sort of window onto Japan in a really interesting period before there really was such a thing as um, Japan, when instead this, is a, this was an archipelago made up of rice farming chiefdoms, and hers, known as Yamatai, was by far the most powerful. Um, and what really interested me about her is that she seems to have combined political power over that chiefdom with a sort of spiritual or shamanic power, you know, interceding with the gods for the good of the population to bring the harvest in. So that combining of political and spiritual power in her, I suppose combined with the fact that she's a little bit mysterious because we don't know so much about her, um, I think makes her quite an attractive figure um, to begin the book with. And the next one is Prince Shutoku, who may or may not have existed in a way. Of course, it doesn't really matter. But tell us, tell us what is written about him, even if he didn't really exist. Well, he's an interesting figure. He's almost too good to be true. So he supposedly lived in the late 500s and the early 600s. And he's written about in the first two histories of Japan that were compiled in the early 700s. And they are, yeah, they're histories, but they're also very much self-justifying. It's a story of how, sort of com commissioned by Japan's emperors, a story of how those emperors came to exercise the power and authority that they do. And Shotoku, Shotoku Prince Shotoku, is given this great role as a kind of cultural diplomat. So forging links with the Korean Peninsula and with China next door and bringing in all sorts of elements of those two cultures that Japan has really flourished with uh, ever since. So things like uh, Buddhism, the architecture that comes with that, a writing system, poetry, clothes, uh, a 17-article constitution, all these sorts of things that early Japan, early imperial Japan was really built on. Shotoko is really credited with helping to bring in and helping to convince the Japanese that this was um, the way forward. So he's a really heroic figure to the point where even if he did exist, he couldn't have been as amazing as some of these accounts claim for him. But I think just to kind of briefly answer that question of did he exist or not, I think the, the balance of historical opinion is that probably someone existed who possessed some of these qualities, but then he becomes invested with plenty of other qualities uh, as well. As I say, this heroic cultural diplomat figure, which makes him a fascinating person to deal with. And in the 8th century, shoguns came into existence. And of mm. course, in the West, we're a bit more familiar with that concept. But how did they first appear in Japanese society? Yeah, so I think they're part of this evolution that I track in the book of Japan from a group of rice farming chieftains who suddenly you know, now and again go to war with each other, and then one particular clan in one um, particular clan called the Yamato become the hegemons from, of most of the main island of Japan, Honshu, and part of the southern island of Kyushu. They become what is even now uh, Japan's imperial family, and to the north. Uh, of uh, the north part of the island of Honshu. There were clans who weren't reconciled to that rule. And so the emperors employed what they called Sei Tai Shogun, 
which are um, commanders of the expeditionary forces against the barbarians. And their job was really to protect the civilized imperial Japan from these outsiders. So it all really begins there. But of course, the shoguns that we've heard of are a development of that, because for a while, the emperor and the aristocrats at court really didn't want to get their hands dirty with any kind of fighting. They employed conscripts who turned out often actually not to be very good. And so to have a professional army instead who would serve them, which is where where the word samurai comes from, looked like a good option initially, but eventually the warrior classes become so powerful that they actually take over. They they have real executive authority in Japan. So shogun comes to mean it, you know, it retains that meaning of barbarian crushing generalissimo. But in reality, these people have political and military power and the emperors end up serving rather ignominiously as puppets of a sort for about a thousand years. Men dominate the historical narrative as so often and the further back in history generally you go the more that is true but what was the role of women a thousand years ago in Japan because they weren't entirely silent were they? Absolutely not. No, I mean, a lot, of course, depends on uh, who you were. But for example, some of the women we know the most about a thousand years ago, so the Heian era in Japan, which is the old name of Kyoto, people that people that some of your um, listeners might be familiar with, like Murasaki Shikibu, um, author of The Tale of Genji. These were aristocratic women. Some of them were ladies in waiting at court, had their eye on goings on, you know, the big ideas, some of the big personalities, and occasionally behind the scenes pulling some strings. But they were also... Um, big uh, literary figures in the sense that they wrote diaries, they wrote novels like The Tale of Genji, all about court life. So they were really important, I think, to the artistic culture of Japan. And in some cases, women in warrior families, a woman I write about called Hojo Masako, the wife of Japan's first um, Kamakura shogun uh, in the early 1200s, they had real political power. In terms of a formal place in Japan's political structures, they were very much second-class citizens. But in reality, because this is about people and it's about families. The women in the families, as a result, have an enormous amount of sway if they are, as characters, strong enough to really generate that. There's a slightly lazy stereotype that Japan is a closed and inward-looking nation. But in Mm. fact, like Britain and Spain, in the 17th century, it was a seafaring nation with voyagers who travelled east and west. Mm. And tell us about the man who pioneered that exploration, who you write about. Yes, so a man called Hasekura Tsunenaga. I thought he was fascinating when I when I found out about him because as you as you say, there's an idea, especially from the 1600s through to the 1800s, that Japan was secluded, not really very much interested in the outside world, and that the West forced Japan to open up, you know, to the modern era. Um, whereas at the beginning of that time, um, there were voyages overseas. Hasekura Tsunenaga went all the way from the east coast of Japan across the Pacific. He travelled through uh, Mexico under Spanish control at that time. Then he crossed the Atlantic to Spain. Um, He visited Italy. He met the Pope. He met the King of Spain, really trying to organize trading links with Japan and also inviting Christian missionaries to come to Japan um, to preach amongst the population. So Japan was in those early years of the 1600s, potentially um, uh, an outward-looking country that wanted to establish relationships around the world. And it was only really after bad experiences, it must be said, with Portuguese and Spanish missionaries in Japan playing politics, um, that Japan decided to have a much more, what you might call a more robust border policy for the decades after that, because they didn't want to have their politics um, being interfered with by outsiders. And what were those bad experiences? What put them off so much? 
I think if people want to have a look at the film um, Silence by Martin Scorsese, based on a book by a, a Japanese Catholic uh, novelist, it was the idea basically that these missionaries would head into Japan as they did across the middle part and later part of the 1500s, um, ostensibly to preach the gospel and to try to win converts. But very soon they were getting into bed, as it were, with some of the really important regional lords in Japan. And they were brokering trading deals with Portuguese and Spanish traders. And some of these things were worth an awful lot of money. And so the people in control of Japan at that point, who who aspired to bring the country together as a united country, thought that the missionaries were a threat to that, that they were about um, playing politics, and that you couldn't really separate religion and politics in the way that they might have hoped. And so the only answer they thought was to boot the missionaries out, basically. One of the most fascinating chapters is about uh, Ikeda Kikune. Have I pronounced that right? Yeah, Ikeda Kikune. Yeah. Yes, you pronounce it much better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically invented MSG, monosodium glutamate. Mm. He isolated that savoury umami taste that's in foods like parmesan, tomatoes and cooked meats. How did that change Japanese cooking? You talk about how it really revolutionised the way people cooked. Yes. So that, that taste, um, he had his sort of eureka moment supposedly at the dinner table when he was served up a broth that had been partly flavoured with seaweed. That particular flavour in Japan and that means of creating it had been around for many centuries. But now rather than boil seaweed, kombu as it's called in, in Japanese, for, you know, hours and hours and hours slaving away in the kitchen, you could simply shake a little bit of this magical powder that he helped to create, which was marketed as ajinomoto, essence of taste. Put a bit of that in the pan and you're done, basically. So the amount of time it would take you to cook decently tasting food was cut drastically back. And I suppose because of the times in which he lived, we're talking about the early 20th century here, the ideal of, you were asking about Japanese women a moment ago, the ideal for Japanese women in the early 20th century was that they would be these multitasking housewives all about educating their children, managing the household budget, helping their husbands out, all these sorts of things. The time available for cooking was relatively small. And so something like this that was tasty and supposedly nutritional as well, it was um, it was a revolution in allowing the modern housewife to be what she was supposed to be. I mean, funnily enough, MSG we know now is not at all good for you. But at the time, Ikeda's reasoning was because of the way um, you know evolution selects, if something tastes good, it must be good for you which is a very it's a very attractive theory for someone like me who likes chocolate, but, but sadly not entirely true. <laughs> and tell us a bit about Atom and mango and how that came into being, because it came, it actually came into Japanese culture much earlier than I assumed it had done. And there was one man who was really responsible for it, wasn't there? That's right. Yeah, the so-called godfather of Japanese manga, um, Tezuka Osamu. I suppose a lot of us who deal with Japanese history, we find visual culture a wonderful way in. And if you look at the 1940s in Japan, when Tezuka was growing up, you find cartoonists on both sides of the Pacific weaponizing their art form, really. So you find Popeye advertising war bonds in America. The Looney Tunes uh, group produced, what do they call it? Tokyo Jokyo. You can find that online. You know, horrifically racist cartoons doing down the Japanese but it was done on you know on on both sides and Tezuka grew up uh, during the war and he he remembered seeing dead bodies floating down the river near his house and he wanted Atom the creation you mentioned this little boy robot to really be a brand new sort of manga creation he was supposed to be 
all about peace and fighting for justice. He's soft. If people see an image of him, he's got this wonderfully cute, innocent looking face. This was really part of the early post-war ideal that these sorts of values would finally win out now that people had seen where different kinds of values eventually get you. So he was incredibly important, I think, on that basis, enormous in Japan. And then when he's turned into a, an anime, so, you know, animated cartoon, um, he becomes the first of that type to be shown on American TV screens. So a real diplomatic achievement uh, as well. So a huge figure all round in the 1950s and early 60s, I think. And the last person you write about, Awada Masako, is now the Empress of Japan. And she's a particularly interesting figure, I suppose, as I've mentioned in the West, because she um, lived in, uh, she was at Oxford University for a while, as I think was her husband, the emperor. And she married into the royal family and then appeared to struggle with depression, although it seems to have been largely hushed up by the royal family in Japan. Tell us a bit more about her and what she what she's doing now. She's a fascinating figure, grew up all around the world. She was in the Soviet Union for kindergarten and then in America for kindergarten. So kindergarten at either end of the ideological spectrum, then Harvard, later on Oxford. So she becomes, uh, by the mid-1980s, this really high-flying diplomat in Japan's uh, foreign ministry. But then she met Crown Prince Naruhito at, or just Prince Naruhito, as I think he was at that point, um, at a party. And he was completely besotted with her. And it seems, from what we know, although it's very hard to write accurate and probing histories when you know the imperial family is a fairly secretive institution but it seems that she wasn't terribly interested because his uh, narrator's mother was well known at the time for suffering from depression herself or at least a kind of anxiety because of the pressures of the role and she was doing so well as a diplomat which she knew she'd have to give up but he made a rather good point he suggested that the imperial family are diplomats in their own right almost holding out the prospect of a diplomatic role more powerful and more independent than the one she would have in the ministry so she took the plunge in 1993 uh, and if you look back at, at media coverage during that era especially from america it reveals this kind of cultural divide a lot of um, american writers women in particular said oh she's making this terrible sacrifice what a silly decision she used to be this high-flying fashionable independent sort and now she's, you know, she's dressed up in these kind of horrible pastel colours with a silly handbag. So the, the, the view right from the marriage in 93 was that she'd made possibly quite a bad decision and that Japan was quite backward when it came to men's relationships with women. Um, and indeed, what was supposed to be a fairy tale, a Charles and Diana style fairy tale, did seem to go south for sort of 10 or 15 years, struggling to produce an heir. She wasn't seen in public for much of the noughties. And as you say, it was hushed up, but eventually conceded that effectively um, she was suffering from depression. But she, she seems to have come out of that, I would say, uh, in the last couple of years, two or three years. And had it not been for COVID, we might have seen a lot more of her. She was due to visit uh, the UK, um, in fact, last year. And hopefully when COVID lifts, you might see some of that kind of long uh, withheld potential start to be released with luck. People talk about a lost decade during the mm. 1990s in Japan. Is that fair? I think in economic terms, yes, it's certainly fair. I mean, Japan had this great economic miracle in the 60s and 70s, and that slowed down dramatically in the 1990s. 
And what I think a lot of historians would point to is a kind of cultural or psychological counterpart to that, where people feel less optimistic about the future. Um, although having said that, there was a British politician, an MP, who went to Japan in that period. And he basically said, you know, if this is a recession, then I want one. Because people were living very well, eating out, loving restaurants. People had fairly new cars, amazing mobile phones, foreign holidays. So it's not a you know, a hugely painful period for most Japanese, but certainly the sheen of that economic miracle had disappeared. And then shortly afterwards, there was that traumatic moment where China overtook Japan as the world's second largest economy. And now lots of our media coverage of East Asia, of course, is focused on China. So there's a sense of that lost decade being the beginning of Japan being somewhat overshadowed, I think, by China. How far has the country managed to climb out of the slump? Do you see it having a renaissance? People have been confidently predicting a renaissance of sorts for quite a long time. But I mean, in fact, two lost decades, so one lost decade turned into two. Um, and now Japan has COVID and some doubts over the very expensive Tokyo Olympic Games. So I'm not sure that we're looking at a renaissance just yet. And Japan's new prime minister, Yoshihide Suga, is already suffering quite poor poll ratings because of his handling of COVID. There is a leadership election coming up at the end of this year, or I think September this year. There's always the chance of a breakthrough figure starting to make a difference there. It can in Japan, as here, be a new and exciting political figure who can come along with something um, approaching a, a new set of ideas that might mean something for Japan. But I think without that very powerful political leadership, it's hard to see much else on the horizon that you might call a renaissance. And the Liberal Democrat Party has been in power for most of the last 50 years, hasn't it? It has, that's right. Yeah, since 1955, bar just a few years. And I do wonder sometimes, um, you know, Japan tends to get covered in our media often when there's something funny or interesting or quirky going on. And I do think if there was more of an ideological back and forth in Japanese politics, more a sense of real contest, as you get, for example, in the States, then perhaps people here might take Japan a bit more seriously um, in political terms. But unfortunately, yeah, the LDP is dominant. The really interesting stuff in Japanese politics involves factions within the LDP rather than anything else. So perhaps once that changes, then there might be some progress towards, yes, I, I like your word, some progress towards a renaissance. But that also doesn't look like happening anytime soon, it has to be said. Do you think the country will open up more to immigrants? Because one of its biggest problems is its ageing population. And the only way out of that is either letting in more immigrants or somehow using robots to, to overcome that problem, I think. Is, do you see that happening? I think it's a really hard sell in Japan. So I say in the book, yeah, that it's more more babies, more robots or more immigrants. On the babies thing, I was lucky enough to be paid £50 or the equivalent thereof by the Japanese government when my first child was born in Japan. So they were handing out cash at that point. But recently, mothers in particular are saying, look, you want us to have more babies. You want us in the workforce. You can only have both if you provide proper childcare and also if you provide more incentives towards reliable employment. Some of Japan's, a lot of Japan's workforce are employed on really uh, precarious contracts. These are the sorts of things that you need to fix if you want people to form families and have children. And the Japanese government seems to have struggled on that. Um, on robots, of course, is a cliche, but it's true. It does very well, especially in what's called carebot industry. So, you know, the idea that robots can look after people who are aging to free up real life human beings for work elsewhere in the economy. Those two things 
it might happen, robots especially. On immigration, people have been sold, I think, for many decades, probably a century and a half, a vision of Japan as being ethnically homogenous. They've almost been taught that idea and taught a certain sense of nervousness about the the dilution of that or the loss of something special about Japan if you have too many people coming in from abroad. So unfortunately, still opinion polls show a high degree of nervousness, if not resistance to the kind of mass immigration that I think Japan would need if it goes that route. What do Europeans get wrong about Japan? That's a good question. Um, I find it quite hard to generalise. You you get people, I think, who fall in love with Japanese literature or cinema or fashion or some particular element of Japan that means they know Japan actually rather well in that particular area. So I, I suppose we perhaps don't have a joined up sense of Japanese history, which is what I, I hope my books partly address. Maybe part of the reason for that is that in our schools, we tend to learn about history that relates to us and we learn about other parts of the world when we go there um, perhaps in the context of empire so that joined up sense of japan perhaps also i think yeah japan's um politics and its social dilemmas beyond the aging population we don't tend to learn a great deal about partly as i said because i think politics is perhaps some people will be upset with the comment but perhaps a little bit staid and a little bit boring so our media tends to home in on the quirky and the weird um and that is where a lot of our general understanding comes from alongside the tourist board mount fuji and to bring us full circle the cherry blossoms i suppose (laughs) chris thanks so much for talking to us oh you're very welcome thank you for having me the japanese a history in 20 lives is published by alan lane If you enjoyed today's Bunker, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search for Bunker Patreon. We'll be back tomorrow for another Bunker Daily. Thanks so much for joining us. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.